Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Should there be an inquiry into the deaths at long-term care homes? Demands continue to rise, and the Ontario government has asked those facilities hardest hit by the virus to come up with a plan to stabilize the spread of the virus, and the deadline was today. And with the pandemic affecting many businesses and services, how's the Cancer Assistance Program doing? Well, Debbie Logo butler is the Executive Director, and she joins us on the program. And a little over a week ago, we spoke with Adam Mayolo, who's an interesting guy. He's a patient at St. Joe's. He works at St. Joe's, but he also is a guy that developed an initiative to play video games for 48 hours to raise money for the work that St. Joe's is doing with COVID-19. We'll get an update from him as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the real tragedies, of course, of what's happened with COVID-19 is uh, the story of the long-term care facilities here in the city. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard the statistic by now. 82% of the people who have died from COVID-19 were residents of long-term care facilities. And uh, there is a, a move afoot right now on, well, it's about federal government involvement, provincial governments getting involved in this, some even suggesting there should be an inquiry into the deaths in these long-term care facilities. Uh, Demands for that inquiry continue to rise. The Ontario government has asked the hardest-hit homes to come up with a plan to stem the spread of this virus in long-term care facilities. Global News reporter Sandy Salerno has the details. Deputy Minister Richard Steele made the request in a letter. It was obtained by the Canadian press and sent to long-term care homes on Friday. Steele asked the facilities to outline how they'll improve leadership through new hires and ensure on-site physicians and medical coverage will be provided. The ministry also wants the facilities to outline how they'll ensure that staffing levels remain stable. There have been more than 1,200 deaths related to COVID-19 in these homes since the outbreak began, including Camilla Care Community in Mississauga saga which has recorded 48 resident deaths. The homes won't have long to respond to the letter as those plans are due by noon today. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Uh, so much to talk about here and so much to add to that list of the concerns that we have with long-term care facilities. Uh, looking for some uh, insight into this and we're pleased to welcome Natalie Mira back to the program. Natalie is the Executive Director for the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, Natalie, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again. I hope uh, you're well. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, as good as you can be in this circumstance. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we're all getting a little antsy, I guess. But uh, this is uh, one of the stories that just has to has to be addressed. Uh, the statistic about this are awful. And you've been on the show many times in the past, Natalie, talking about this. And as I mentioned on my commentary this morning, uh, COVID-19 did not cause this health care crisis in long-term care facilities. It exposed it. And, and now we're talking about it. And that wasn't always the case. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, there's been a staffing crisis prior to this. It emerged around 2017 and uh, for the PSWs, so the people that do kind of the bulk of the daily hands-on care work and along with the RPNs and the RNs, the RNs and the homes. Uh, and uh, and there was a severe shortage. I mean, every home, we did rounds of roundtables across the province with the homeowners and the workers themselves and the people that run the college programs and the family councils and so on. And uh, there was total consensus. There was a crisis, a, sh- a short staffing crisis. Every home was working short, every shift, every day, uh, worse in the evenings, worse on the weekends. And that was prior to COVID-19. Uh, and we had raised it. We'd raised it in reports and so on. And there was also a care level crisis. So not only in normal times when there wasn't such a bad staffing crisis, the levels of care were far too low for the acuity that is the complexity and heaviness of the care needs of the residents, many of whom have dementia 
many of whom have behaviors. The reason that they're in long-term care homes is because people, they were just beyond the ability for people to take care of at home if they had families. And, uh, and that's also why people have not been able to easily take them out because their care needs are so very high. And, uh, and the care levels just had not kept pace with the offloading of these ever more complex patients from hospitals as beds were closed and so on. Yeah, and we heard some of those stories, Natalie, when this whole thing started. It seems like forever ago now. Uh, people said, you know, we, we want to take mom out of that facility because we're afraid of the spread of the infect of the virus. Uh, but then they found out, you know, we can't we can't do this. We we don't have the uh, the ability to care and give her the kind of care that she needs. We can love her, uh, but we can't do what they're doing in some of these facilities. So the staffing issue is 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 a big part of this. Uh, and of course, we've heard about one of the other problems with the staffing is that you know the the wages were so low in some of these facilities that that you had personal care workers that were actually working two or three different facilities just to make ends meet with their paycheck. Uh, that's that's got to be discussed too. Absolutely. Yeah, those are very good points. And the fact is that, you know, when there's a severe shortage of PSWs, the fact that so many of them are working part time, that it takes years, five years, sometimes 10 years to get a full time job means that there's obviously a scheduling issue. It means that the homes don't want to schedule them full time because they don't want to pay benefits and Mm -hmm. so on or because they want the flexibility in scheduling and haven't really cared that it has resulted in poor poor working conditions for the staff. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. How do you have a massive shortage and then people can't get a full-time job? They have to work multiple part-time jobs. That doesn't make any sense, right? And so, I mean, there were major problems that needed to be addressed before this. The fact that the government is now, now asking the facilities for a plan now is just, it's, it makes me furious, actually. It really does. Uh, so many people have died. Clearly, the homes don't have a plan. They haven't been able to make a plan. You know, the government could have a coordinated response. They could set standards. They could go in and take over those homes. They have the ability in legislation to revoke the licenses of homes that are incompetent or negligent. They should go into those homes that have been shown to be negligent or where there are very serious accusations of negligence and um, incompetence and take them over, revoke the licenses, appoint interim managements. You know, in the other homes, there should be a coordinated approach. Once you drop below, you know, whatever it is, 10% less staff than you normally have, then, you know, X, Y, Z measures go into effect to support the staffing in that home so people can be fed and repositioned and have the basics of daily care provided. Residents should be admitted to hospital if they need hospital care. And if the home can't take care of them, if they can't feed them and provide them with safe care, then the hospitals are not in crisis. The long-term care homes are in crisis. They're in complete crisis. Why are they not being admitted to hospital? You know, there's a bunch of things here that government could have done for weeks and should have done. And now to just say, here, come up with a plan, it's it's like making it look like they're doing something without really actually doing something, which is a lot of what's happened all the way along.
Well, not only that, are they being single-minded about this, Natalie, but I mean, they're, they're simply putting the onus on the facilities themselves, and there's so much more to, to this discussion. You, you mentioned in, the, in your opening comments about home care. I mean, the, 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 you know, the level of money that goes into home care in this province is, is abysmal. Uh, that might be the solution for some of these residents, not all of them, but some of them, which would ease the burden. I also want people to get the, the, the idea out of their head that, you know, the, you know, the staffing here is the problem. Uh, you know, the, they'll think of the wet law for case in Woodstock and say, well, that's why it's that. No, these, these are, for the most part, very, very dedicated people that are working long hours to try to look after the frail and the elderly, but they're not being given the resources to do it. And, and therein lies the problem. And, the, yeah. the, you know, the word that comes to mind every time, and I'm just listening to what you were saying here about what needs to be done, is oversight. Uh, in, in, and, and that's part of the problem here. I mean, we had the premier on the program a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him about that and, and about this whole thing, and he was distraught because, as you know, his mother-in-law is in one of these facilities, and he saw mm-hmm. firsthand what it's like. And I said, well, with all due respect, Mr. Priyuria, you cut the budget for oversight last year. There were only nine inspections in the whole province last year. Right. In the entire province. How can you possibly say, yeah, the system's running well when you don't have oversight on it? Yeah, oversight and enforcement for sure. Yeah. Yeah, since the Ford government got elected, they canceled. See, what happened was under the last, so, you know, different health ministers under the Liberals, some did good things, some did bad things for long-term care. Deb Matthews, when she was the health minister, canceled the the regular annual inspections. Mm-hmm. When Eric Hoskins came in, he reinstated them. And uh, well, actually, they were reinstated before that. We fought and pushed for them to be reinstated. And then he brought in, in an omnibus bill, an enforcement regime that included significant fines for the homes for noncompliance. So if they were, if they were cited and they didn't fix it, then they were cited again. Uh, they would be fined and those fines could go up, you know, so there was kind of a, there was a penalty for them not complying that was serious. It was a financial penalty. The homes, you know, lobbied against that, obviously, particularly the for-profit homes. Um, and, uh, and that was brought in just prior to the election. So the way that it was dealt with was um, that they just stopped the inspections. And, and we saw right? and we saw the results of that. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be that. There's, listen, there's another element to that. We've got a couple of minutes left here, and I mm-hmm. wanted you to address this as well, Natalie. And that's the facilities themselves. And and I, I know an awful lot of our people that are listening right now may not have even stepped foot into one of these things. We have, uh, through relatives and friends that, have, of course, been uh, residents in some of these facilities, many of these buildings where these facilities, both private and public, are old, outdated buildings. Uh, crowded conditions, crowded, uh, you know, dining halls, some of these the large rooms with th- three, sometimes four patients in the room. They're only separated by a flimsy little curtain. It's, it's no wonder that the, the virus spreads in places like this. Mm-hmm. Those, um, so if it's not four to a room, then it'll be two to a room or shared bathrooms, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. But from the beginning, we've been saying to the government, look, there's no real way to isolate. In you know, the, the idea is if people were to contract COVID-19, they should be isolated, right? So it doesn't spread. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, from, from the outset, this is months now, have said there's no real way to isolate in long-term care. I mean, in some of the newer homes, for sure, but not in the older homes. And so people should be able to be admitted to hospital. Like there is another option. You know, in order to facilitate isolation, what the government did was they brought in guidelines that allowed the homes to use common spaces as as rooms yeah. and other things like that so that they could facilitate isolation, but always with keeping all the people in the homes. 
we really don't understand this approach. I mean, obviously, if there's a big problem in the homes and it's spreading like wildfire in the homes, then, you know, why would it not be considered that people in other places, people do get the access to hospital care. They get access to treatment. If there's not enough staff to provide the basics in the homes, can we not, why are we not considering moving people with their consent. I mean, obviously, everything is subject to the right to consent. That's mm-hmm. cornerstone in our healthcare system. But, I mean, surely people would want to be in a place where there's enough staff to look after them safely, you know? And we're just very worried about what's happening and really want leadership from the province, not just leave it to the providers to figure out themselves over and over and over when that has not worked. It hasn't worked in decades, and it continues not to work in the pandemic. There's an awful lot of, uh, you know, hand-washing going on. I, I don't mean to be flippant about that. I mean, obviously, there was because of COVID-19, but I mean by governments. Uh, in other words, you know, this is not my problem. The federal government has said all along, well, that's a provincial responsibility. Uh, I, and I get that. Okay, we understand that. But the money essentially flows from the federal government to the provinces, and, and the provinces are supposed to spend it ju- judiciously on things like infrastructure and, and services and, and obviously staffing and things of this nature. It's not happening. It's, first of all, there's not enough money. Second of all, there seems to be a lack of responsibility uh, between the two levels of government to, to follow through on this, to make sure that this, is, this money is going where it's supposed to go. Uh, I know the feds are going to say, well, look, we're just going to step back and let the provinces deal with this. I think the feds have to have a, a, a voice in this. They've got to take more control over this. They're, they're the ones that are cutting the check initially. Well, the Canada Health Act covers medically necessary hospital and physician services, right? That's what it mm-hmm. does. So, and it says that we're supposed to get them without user fees and so on, right? It protects, yeah. it's like a bill of rights for access to health care. So what's happened is they've cut hospitals in, in Ontario, no, no province more radically than ours, right? Ontario yeah. has the fewest hospital beds left. And they moved all of those patients, the chronic care patients, the psychogeriatric patients into long-term care. The federal government does have a role in shoring up Medicare. You know, people's provinces should not be allowed to privatize health care simply by cutting hospitals and offloading whole categories of complex patients into a level of care that is insufficiently funded to provide for them. Like that, that is just, that's what's happened. Money has been saved for decades now on the backs of the elderly and their families by offloading people into a level of care that was funded at a third of the rate that those patients were funded when they were in hospitals. And, um, and you know, so the federal government does have a role there. They're right that delivery of health care is generally provincial, and the province has uh, a responsibility to govern the delivery of long-term care properly. So, I mean, there are pieces for each level of government. In this pandemic, the federal government is doing all the heavy lifting. I mean, they're paying for almost everything. Yeah. So, you know. Well, I remind people, this is going way, way back. You're too young to remember this yourself, Natalie, but when this whole thing started back in 1964, this our, our Medicare system, uh, the federal government paid 50% of the cost. That's uh, right. And uh, that, that, that's a long time ago, and they don't pay anywhere near that these days. Below 20 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you've got to be a voice in this, and that's why I wanted to get you on the program today to make sure that people are aware of just what the circumstances are, just how dire they are. Uh, I want to stay in touch with you, Natalie, as the the provincial government says they're going to continue to do something about this. Uh, There's a deadline today for these uh, facilities to respond to to that request. I'm not sure what kind of response they're going to get, but uh, we're certainly going to get your feedback on it in the days ahead. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, thank you for telling those stories. It really matters. Thank you so much. 
Okay, Natalie, we'll stay in touch. Natalie Mira, Executive <laughs> Director for the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With the pandemic shuttering many businesses and services, uh, many of these services are trying to find innovative ways to still deliver uh, to their patients or their clients. One of those, of course, is the Cancer Assistance Program, which is doing incredibly good work in this community and has been for many, many years. They've uh, been able to continue uh, a couple of different programs that I want to talk about right now with uh, Debbie Logel Butler, who is the Executive Director for the Cancer Assistance Program, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Debbie, good morning. Thank you for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Great to speak with you. How are you guys doing up there as, as this goes on? Well, you know what? We, um, like others, are facing our challenge. We had to close our doors on March yeah. 16th in order to protect both the clients and the volunteers. As you know, I've uh, been on the show before, and we mm-hmm. do rely on a, a large uh, group of volunteers. And uh, with our drive and ride and the isolation and social distancing, we, we made the tough decision. But um, on April the 6th, we decided to sort of change and, and kind of reinvent ourselves, if you will. So uh, we created a program called Drive to Deliver. And so what we're doing is we have a group of volunteers who uh, every Friday will deliver uh, incontinence, uh, nutrition, so Ensure. And we've added now food bags, a grocery bag uh, that's been, um, we've partnered with Zarkis. Uh, fine foods, and we are delivering to the doorstep. So we've really um, found that um, cancer patients are extremely vulnerable. They already of course uh, they are, yeah. feel that isolation. They they feel that loss. And for some of them, you know, just going to a grocery store can be a very, very, very frightening experience. And so uh, we found that doing this um, has really helped our clients. Um, we have to date uh, reached out to 450 cancer ca- cancer assistance program clients, and so on Mondays and Tuesdays, volunteers phone the clients, do a check in, see if there's anything that they need. Uh, we put our orders in on Wednesday to Zarkis. We have one staff member who goes up and uh, gets our part of the. Uh, the the Ensure and the Incontinence uh, ready. And then Friday, the drivers pull up to our door, contact list, pop their trunk, orders are put into their trunk. Uh, they pick up the food bags again, con- contact list at Zarkis, and then deliver to the clients. It's a great idea. And we should mention, by the way, uh, in in normal times, and I use that in quotation marks, I guess, Debbie, uh, the Cancer Assistance Program relies on an army of fabulous people as volunteers that drive people to and from uh, appointments and things of this nature. Uh, During the pandemic and during the, uh, the, as you say, the reinvention, I guess, that you guys have had to go through right now, uh, are those volunteers still with you? Are they they there to say, look, what can we do to help? Yes, they are. So Mondays Good. and Tuesdays, there's a, a team of uh, 15 volunteers that make phone calls, so virtually from their homes. Sure. And then about 15 volunteers that, as soon as the pandemic hit, they said, listen, we still want to help. How can we help? So we've got about 15. So two teams on Fridays, uh, teams of seven or eight, will take their turn and, again, drive uh, with this contactless uh, type of delivery program. So we've uh, reached out to the community because this is a brand new program for us and we've, uh, you know, asked for some funding support and we were really fortunate, Bill. We had um, the Hutton family, um, another anonymous uh, donor family, um, Hamilton Community Foundation, uh, Doug Leggett and the Leggett Auto Group, and Mm -hmm. of course the City of Hamilton that have given us some seed money 
to uh, part, you know, to put this program together. Um, we're of course always looking for more and uh, and more support because I think we all can agree this is going to go on for a bit longer. Well, it is, and you know, we've focused on on COVID nineteen, and that's quite understandable with given what's going on in the world these days. Uh, but the challenge for you, Debbie, and your volunteers is—I mean, you've you've con- got to continue to do your work. I mean, you know, the cancer program is going on, the cancer assistance program is going on because there are still people that are being treated, still people that are trying to receive treatments for this. Uh, and your point about vulnerability, I, I think, has to be underscored here. We've heard from the outset that there are going to be a group of people that are going to be more vulnerable to this virus, and. We were just talking about long-term care facilities, and of course the frail and elderly who are residents or patients in some of those facilities, certainly you'd think, okay, yeah, they're in that. But so are people that are going through chemotherapy. Uh, And, and, you know, we're talking about here we are complaining, though, gee, I'm stuck at home here. Uh, uh, Many of these people don't want to go into the house because they're afraid of what they might bump into or what they might catch, and it could be have disastrous results for them. So the work that you do, as important as it is all the time, is even more important now through this virus. Absolutely. You know, last year, in 2019, we did over 11,000 rides to cancer clients. And although the hospital has um, suspended some of their programs, you know, that need yeah. will continue. And so we are now challenged with not only doing our work differently right now with the drive to deliver, but when we go back to driving, when the clinics are opening as we, you know, we hope, and we, we will rely on the hospitals to um, keep us apprised of when they are going to start, but how do we drive safely? How do we put people in our cars? For with, How do I keep our volunteers safe? How do I keep that cancer client safe? And so what is that going to look like? Um, you know, do we need, um, you know, do we need masks? Do we need gloves? Do we need some sort of protective um, backup uh, between front seat and back seat? All of these questions we don't know yet, but we're starting to plan and starting to um, think about, you know, what will, as you called it, that new norm look like for the Cancer Assistance Program. By the way, we should mention uh, for people, the patients that are are being discharged, for instance, uh, your equipment loan program, I assume that's still going on? Absolutely. So since, again, March 16th, we... uh, kept our equipment loan because it was really important for those that are being discharged to make making rooms for the, the COVID beds um, that they could get home safely. So since we've, um, you know, since March when we closed our doors, we've had 120 pieces of equipment go into homes to help that, that discharge process. So yes, the equipment uh, loans program is still open. Just have to call our number. There's a, um, an extension and we will by appointment only still, again, backdoor contactless, be able to serve uh, cancer patients and their families that require equipment. Uh, I just remembered this time of year, and especially when I saw snow this morning, it reminded me about uh, the walkathons we used to go on uh, with Cancer Assistance Program. Uh, whether it's, It used to be down by the Brow, then we were up around Bernie Arbor Park and through there, uh, under all kinds of weather. It was really bizarre the, the time of year. Now, we, of course, because of the virus and because of some of the, the restrictions that have been put in place, there, there isn't going to be a physical walk, but, uh, but you're going to do the virtual walk this year, I understand. We are. We're going to do the virtual walk on Saturday, May 23rd. And um, for the past five years, we've been down, as you said, at the Bay Park. Um, yeah. And so what we're uh, encouraging, uh, again, anyone to sign up. And the beauty about a virtual uh, walk is that you can live anywhere. You can live in Ottawa. Sure. You can live in Toronto. Um, you and your family can create a team. And so we're asking you to visit our website at www.cancersys.com 
www.thepeopleshow.ca and sign up for the walk. It's $20 for adults. Anyone under 18 is free. And we're asking you to get out and walk. Walk on your walk on your treadmill. Walk up and down your stairs. Walk on your street. Run. Bike ride. Take your puppy out for a walk. Do whatever. Um, and reach out to your family and friends. And um, you know what? Sign up. This is probably the easiest walk we're ever going to do. But we really, really, really need the support. And uh, I need to do a little quick shout-out to First Ontario, um, LJ Barton, Mechanical at Morrison Insurance, and Edward Jones. They jumped on. As soon as we said, we're not sure what we're going to be able to do, we want to do a virtual walk, they said, sign us up. We're here to support. So uh, a great thanks to them and to everyone that's signed up already. But we're, we're looking for more, and, and it's so easy to do. So, so easy, and your support will go a long way in helping us to get ready for what that new norm is going to look like. Well, and as we've said in the past uh, with these great walks, uh, I mean, if you can't partake for whatever reason, uh, you can sponsor somebody uh, because it's all about uh, the great work that goes on. And, and let's face it, there's a cost to this as well. And, uh, you know, you, you want to make sure that the facilities and the programs are going to be available. So, uh, again, the web page to go to? www.cancerassist.ca. And if you are signing up, please take photos, uh, send them in, uh, hashtag us with hashtag CapWalk2020. We want to see pictures of you out walking, running, riding your bike, whatever, being on your treadmill. Just share your pictures with us because we'd love to share them and and support you uh, in, in this walk. Well, we are going to come out of this on the other end eventually, Debbie. But uh, in the meantime, you and your staff, as always, are doing incredible work in the community. And uh, we salute you for that. And uh, anybody who can listen to this program and it, it can offer some support, uh, by all means do so for the great work that you do with the Cancer Assistance Program. Thanks so much for this. And uh, continue good luck and good health to all of you. Thank you, Bill. And thank you again for uh, giving me this opportunity. And stay safe and stay well. You betcha. Great, great talking with you again, Debbie. Thanks so much. Debbie Logo butler Executive Director for the Cancer Assistance Program. Uh, if you're in the car right now and you didn't write that down, just Google it when you get back, Cancer Assistance Program. Go to their webpage and uh, see if you can do something to help them out. And by the way, as she mentioned, uh, thanks to the great corporate sponsors who are always there to step up here in this community for worthy causes like this. Uh, another one, of course, is St. Joe's and the great work that they do here in this community. And uh, the, the St. Joseph Foundation is uh, in the fundraising business to try to make sure that there are capital funds for some of the great programs that are going to go there. The uh, communications officer of St. Joseph's Healthcare is uh, one Adam Mayolo. Now, you may remember that name. We talked with Adam a few days ago about his uh, fabulous initiative that he had to play video games for 48 hours to raise money for St. Joseph's and the COVID-19 efforts that they're doing. Well, the marathon has just ended. And uh, I'm sure he's pretty tired right now, but we've coaxed him to come back on the program to give us an update. Uh, Adam Aiolo, how are you doing? Great to have you on the show again today. Uh, hey, Bill. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I had uh, just woke up about an hour ago from an unreal sleep, so I'm feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a little bit to recharge the batteries. So walk us through this. How, how did it go? It went awesome, yeah. Uh, so we, we kicked it off on Friday at about 7 p.m., uh, and we wrapped it up uh just a little bit later than we had planned to, about 8 p.m. last night. Uh, and uh, we're still kind of like tallying everything up, but it looks like we're at about $4,200 raised so far, which is amazing. Excellent. That's fabulous. Uh, so how did it plan out? Show, t- talk to us about how the weekend went. For sure. Well, uh, the weekend started on on the Friday at 7 there, so I was the first gamer uh, up at, uh, at about 7 p.m. 
And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty good run. I was playing uh, Ocarina of Time, so that took me until about uh, 8 a.m. or so, the Saturday morning. Um, so I think I played about 14 hours consecutively, so it was <laughs> a lot of... Uh, a lot of endurance there. Uh, How do you do that? Do you take breaks? We usually take breaks, uh, and we had to take little mini breaks once in a yeah. while to like recharge the battery. Um, sure. But uh, the difference with this marathon was that we were all remote, so we kind of um, anybody yeah. who who uh, was responsible for a game kind of had to see it to completion by themselves. Whereas uh, uh, in, in previous years, we're all in one room in one setting, so we can kind of like pass the controller back and forth. Um, that wasn't mm-hmm. a luxury we were afforded this year. Um, so, yeah, I had some amazing help from uh, my wife, Rachel, who was keeping <laughs> me hydrated and fed and, uh, and whatnot throughout it. Um, but it was awesome, man. Like, uh, it, it, uh, it, it was uh, pretty wild to see what, um, like, not only, like, like, like us as a group, but our, our, our community was able to kind of help pull together uh, in, in a month or so because this, this whole event wasn't even really conceived until about a month ago, and we had no idea how it was going to go. Um, because there were so many like logistical hurdles uh, in terms of like we we never run a marathon this way before, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But it actually ended up working out really really well. Um, so it it's it, it's cool because uh, not only were we able to successfully raise funds for St. Joe's, but it it was a, a good template to set for future events where um, you know if this is still a thing in the fall, we can still we know that we can still do something, right? Yeah, that, that's the nice thing about this. And, and like so many great ideas, it really just it was born of a bunch of guys getting around figuring, okay, what can we do? Uh, it's not business as usual. We've got to think outside the box, you know, all those cliches. And uh, and you guys came up with this idea. And uh, it, I'm sure it grabbed an awful lot of people's imagination and attention. It did, yeah. And, like, one of the things, like, it was um, it was kind of like a three-pronged approach, uh, kind of like what we wanted to accomplish with it. Like, like, like first and foremost, we wanted to support our healthcare heroes at St. Joseph's. Um, but kind of like the secondary causes were one, it was a good thing just for us as a group of friends to be able to do to get, uh, you know, some semblance of normalcy and, and kind of like reconnect with each other. Um, but it was also something we wanted to do for, for the, the, the broader community as well to kind of just give them something to, uh, to look forward to and watch, um, kind of like during these difficult times. So, and, and from everything I've heard feedback wise, it, uh, you know, it, it looks like we, we, uh, accomplished all three of those things. So. It, it, it was really fun, and it was really uh, a, a rewarding experience to be a part of, for sure. Well, it's it's tough, as you and I talked about the last time you were on the program. Uh, fundraising is, is a very difficult exercise at any time, but especially in these times, uh, where there are so many needy groups out there, very worthwhile groups that are doing such great work in the community. And, and St. Joe's, obviously, is right near the top of the list there, as, as they always have been, uh, with the great services that they're offering and programs that they're offering. Uh, but as we mentioned, there's a cost to this. And if you can come up with something like you guys did, that's it's little it's innovative and it's like hey that's a kind of a neat idea uh if you can grab people's imagination then you get them on side with you absolutely yeah and um the, the cool thing too about our events as well too is that you you had mentioned like a, a cost of fundraising um and one of the really unique things about uh this particular event and events kind of like them is uh that really isn't a ton of startup cost uh to it so uh in terms of like the funds raised uh, and, and, and what percentage of that will eventually go to, to St. Joe's, uh, it's a strong a strong percentage of it because our, our real only costs affiliated with this kind of an event will be uh, like shipping, you know, the, the uh, amounts for shipping prizes. Mm-hmm. Because we do have donors 
Um, and I guess one of the other unique things about this event is that we have donors and people who win prizes, not only in Canada, but we have lots of followers in the U.S. as well, too, and lots of donations that come from the U.S. So uh, we, have, we have prizes that we send out uh, for auctions and whatnot, but that's really like one of the only main costs that we incur outside of like fees that you know, PayPal might, might take here and there. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 really cool idea from that standpoint where you can come up with a fundraising idea with with you know so long as you have a you know a, a computer and and the ability to, to 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 stream your video games you can get it together with a relatively low startup cost and, and potentially make a, a lot of money. Well, the money continues to flow in uh, four thousand dollars in county, a little over four thousand dollars so far, and I'm sure that there's a, there'll be some more in. If you're one of the folks that uh, contributed, uh, make sure that uh, you make sure the money is transferred over there uh, for the great work that they're doing. Uh, Adam, uh, have a little downtime. I know that you, as a communications officer with the foundation, uh, you're a busy guy to begin with, and, and this is just adding to it. But it was a fun time by all uh, accounts, and everybody seemed to have a blast and and a great success too because of the money you raised. Uh, thanks so much for this and. Uh, uh, continue good luck with the great work that you guys are doing at St. Joseph's Foundation, the, the Healthcare Foundation, uh, which plays such a key role in this community. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I also just want to give uh, you know a shout out to your your, your team as well too, as for, for giving us a platform to talk about it. Really, really appreciate that. It's our pleasure. Anytime. Thanks again, Adam. Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye. Adam Aiolo, communications officer with St. Joseph's Healthcare, a, a video game marathon that raised a ton of money for the uh, the foundation. The great work that they do. Way to go, team. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.